You're listening to another life-transforming message from C3 Church San Diego. For more information on our church, go to c3sandiego.com. Some of you guys know me. I've been here for a little bit. I played Jesus in, uh, in Hero. It's the fifth year that I've gotten to, to do that, which is crazy to me. When I came to this church, I sang in the shower. I would not go out with people for karaoke parties. Uh, I can sing. I've always been able to do that, but I had such an incredible fear of man, of judgment, of being in front of people, and I uh, had body image issues, had had an eating disorder earlier in my life, suffered from like crazy anxiety to the point that I had to go to the ER several times with panic attacks. So the idea of being able to sing in public while wearing nothing but a loincloth with a spotlight on me, <laughs> covered in blood, Singing a rock ballad, it's a little bit beyond where I was when I got, when I got here. But I'll tell you that that's what this, this church has done to me. I had such a small life. And, you know, we, we share around tithing at every service. And there's a, that verse in, in Malachi 3 that says that God will, if you're obedient in your tithe, that God will open the storehouses of heaven so much that there will be, there will be no room to contain the blessing in your life. And it's not just like, oh, shoot, my storehouses are full. I guess this is just going to go downstream into the gutter and get collected. It's like, no, you got to build a bigger storehouse. That, and this is a place where my life has grown so much bigger than I ever even thought I was qualified to have a life that, that would grow. So uh, I want to get deep with you guys tonight. I've uh, in, in Hero every year, I pray a lot, I spend a lot of time in the Gospels, and I've been able to see things that I'd never seen uh, before. And this was a year like that. I'm so excited to be able to share with you what I found this year in there, but I uh, just want to invite you that, uh, to buckle up, that, uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm going to go deep here for a second, but I promise that I'll bring it together in a way that it'll hopefully be digestible. So I pray that the Holy Spirit's power would fall, that it would be totally, totally working out. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, genetics. And I, I grew up in La Jolla. I grew up around a lot of DNA people, and that, that field's always been fascinating to me. And this year I read a few articles uh, about genetics and was uh, fascinated with some of the things that I saw. Uh, this year they found out that science have observed that epigenetic memories, uh, traumatic experiences can be passed down up to 14 generations forward. So there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of things, and these aren't like small publications like Science and the New York Times and Scientific American and The Atlantic. I mean, like, they're, they're, it's not like quirky, weird church theory about what happens with traumatic experiences in life. This is science. And I want to talk a little bit about the science of, of epigenetics, because epigenetics means uh, above genetics. So you have DNA, and the DNA is this double helix of information that's passed down all of your genetic material since uh, Adam and Eve. And weird thing to note, like I did one of those uh, 23andMe type things, except I did one through National Geographic, and they sent the kit, and then they had, you know, your, your like recent DNA, and then your little bit deeper DNA, and then your really deep DNA. 
And science has now determined that all of mankind can be traced back to two people in Africa. They call them Y-chromosome Adam and mitochondrial Eve, and there's some argument about some things, but genetically they know that every single human on this planet came from two people, which is pretty crazy, right? You know, the Bible's been saying it for thousands of years, but now science is kind of caught, caught up. And I, I'm one that, like, I like to think, and, and, you know, I thought Christians, I really, really believed Christians were really dumb bigots for years. I, I, you know, when I was a little kid, I, I lost my faith in God when I lost my faith in the other hero of Christmas, and, uh, and I, was, I was about six years old, and it left, you know, I put a lot of faith in that guy. I would make my yearly pilgrimage to, to his shrine at the mall, and I would petition him with the prayers that I'd been thinking about all year long. And under the tree every year, the best presents would be from him. And I'm like, I just didn't get it. It's like, why, mom, would you give somebody else credit for the thing that I find most valuable? I don't, I don't understand. And so I, I'm, there were a lot of things that went on in my early life that were heartbreaking. And so I just determined that adults were liars and I had to like figure it out for myself. Um, but I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, about this, this field because it's, it's so interesting to me. And just remember 14 generations. We'll get to that in, in, just, uh, in just a second. But basically, so you have this genetic information in your DNA. Epigenetics is this layer on top of that that it's the experiences that we have in the world. They call them small coding RNAs that change your genetic structure. And so the, the genetic pattern doesn't change, but the way it expresses itself changes. So the DNA, it's, it's a helix. It winds around itself, but it can either be open and express itself, or it can be really tight and not express itself. And so there's things that, that will express themselves or not express themselves based on experiences that we have in the world. And, you know, it's something that God built into us because we're adaptable. So if you're having a really traumatic experience, if you're going through significant abuse, it's probably good that you emotionally shut down. Because in that time, like, I, I know that I've experienced that stuff, and it was good for me to shut down in that period, because if I didn't, I would have gone crazy. But after that period's over, it's not good that I stay shut down, Right? And there's things that we experience. There, there was an article they had. Uh, they've been able to tra trace it several, like they, they were able to trace generationally forward uh, Civil War POW uh, great, 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 great grandchildren. And they found that the great grandchildren of these great, great, whatever times, grandchildren of these Civil War vets that were in POW camps where they were really, really bad POW camps during the Civil War carried the same stuff that was affecting their mental health and their physical health. Such a crazy thing, just all these generations forward. And like, I don't know about any of you guys in here. I, I know some of my family history, like my mom's family history is pretty well recorded, but I couldn't off the top of my head tell you what my great times 13 grandfather's name was. <laughs> 
let alone like the things that kept him up at night. You know, if I know anything about my, my ancestors, I know their accomplishments. If they did something really incredible, if they were like a president or like an army general or something, like you know about that, but you don't know about the trauma that they experienced. And to have this expectation that somehow like all of the things that I came here with are just things that I'm supposed to have isn't really scientific. Because I believe that there were a lot of things about me that I just couldn't escape over the course of my life. And there were things that I experienced as a child and like I didn't think that my childhood was any different than anybody else's or like something that was a big deal because it was the only childhood that I knew. And I think when you just know what you know, I mean, you might be able to compare it to somebody else's, but you don't know what that experience was actually life like because you didn't live it, right? Right, so, you know, in my life, I was, uh, my mom was married when I was born, but the man that was my father wasn't her husband. And I was kidnapped from the man who was her husband when I was two and a half and brought to Vancouver. And the man who was her husband who believed he was my father, my mom actually believed that he was my dad until I was like 25 and that's a whole nother thing. And my family is not like Jerry Springer at all. I, my mom came from like a really good family. My, my, her husband was a famous French chef. They had a Michelin, Michelin star restaurant in Saint-Tropez, France. I didn't come from like crazy, crazy, but there was crazy, crazy, you know? And so it's, I, my mom had a boyfriend that, that molested me when I was five. I don't remember it. I was adopted when I was, uh, when I was nine by my mom's second husband. He's an amazing father and has been an amazing father to me. Um, but in, uh, in my teenage years, I got into drugs and drinking and spiraled really out of control, had a lot of experiences where I could have died, where I should have died. God brought me out of that in moments where I was suicidally depressed and thinking if I just took this really huge shot, I would either find out that God was real or I would die with a smile on my face. And in those moments, God sent people that were caught up in their own mess to talk me out of things, like having conversations with me that never happen in that, in that space, but they happen to me. And looking back years later after getting saved, I can see where God was in my life that whole, that whole time. But God delivered me from my addiction for the last time on May 20th of 1995. I was 19 years old and it was, I, I had been in recovery for two and a half years, had been in and out. I had, I, you know, it, for most people, recovery should seem like it's a blessing. To me, it felt like a curse because even though my drug addiction and my alcoholism wasn't working well for me, it was the only thing that worked. And I used to joke with people saying like, I don't have a drinking problem or I don't have a drug problem, but there's a lot of people that seem to have a problem with the way I drink and do drugs. But honestly, when I was high, I didn't care. But I cared about the consequences and I wanted to figure out how I could manage heavy alcohol abuse and, and moderate drug habit without consequences. That was like my dream. <laughs> but uh, I, had, I had an experience on, uh, on May 20th of 1995 where I, I was confronted by somebody that cared about me I looked in the mirror and for the first time in my life, I saw the reality of my life. 
staring me back in the face. I knew that everything in my life needed to change immediately and dramatically and that I had no power to make that change happen on my own. And I've never been an atheist. I didn't think that the universe originated out of nothing and is endlessly rushing on to a destiny of nothingness. I saw like perfect order in things. I believed that there was a creator. I just didn't know that I believed that he cared enough to intervene in my life. You know, this idea that God was maybe just somewhere else, but on that morning, I didn't have anywhere else to go. I was up against myself more than I ever had been in my life. And in the back of a little Starbucks employee bathroom on Prospect Street in La Jolla, I had this confrontation with myself in the mirror and I got down on my knees and prayed to a God that I didn't understand and didn't completely believe in and just said, God help me. And something changed. The floodgates just opened and I was like ugly crying for a good 45 minutes and I didn't have this revelation where the skies parted and I saw Jesus and just angels appeared and everything else but I found a peace and he took away my obsession to drink and use drugs and showed me a path forward but the story is like only sort of beginning there because I, I refused to call him by name. Like, I didn't believe in that God. I'd lost my faith in that God when I lost my faith in the guy in the red suit, you know? And it was just, I thought that people that believed in Jesus were like high school kids that still went and sat on Santa's lap. I wasn't going for it. I mean, like, remember ignorant bigots. That's the one, like, that's what I thought about, about Christians, because I thought it was a long set of rules to follow, that I would only be accepted by Christ if I was perfect. And I'd had some bad examples. I also had the like Christian bait and switch crowd that would like invite me to barbecues and music events where they would tell me about all these great people that were going to be there, not telling me that all these great people were going to be talking about Jesus and all these great bands were going to be playing songs about Jesus. And then there was going to be a guy that got up and was talking like I'm talking to you right now. I... <laughs> And I'd feel awkward and want to leave. And it was just, I, I don't know why they couldn't just be honest, be like, look, I, we believe that this is actually real. And so much so that we're willing to make ourselves feel awkward for your sake. You want to come? Yeah, I might have, I don't know if I would have responded. But anyway, there's, there's a... So I got sober at 19 years old, and there was a lot that, that changed. There was a lot that God was working out in, in me. I got into a recovery fellowship, and I learned what Christian uh, repentance really was. And for those of you who are familiar with 12-step uh, with recovery, it's really just Christian repentance, where you have this inner confession that leads to an outer confession that leads to life change. The problem was is I was doing it on my own steam. So I would get like good, 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 good. And at 19, I had a lot of hope in things in the world. I had hope that when I got the relationship, when I got the house, when I got the job, when I got the car, when I got the clothes, when I got the stuff, then my shoulders would drop, then my skin would feel like it fit right, then I would be able to walk around feeling like my life made sense. And at 28, I checked off all of those boxes. And from 19 to 28, I was... Whew, there's, a, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff, because I, I went from addiction to addiction. I wasn't using drugs or drinking anymore, but I got really into uh, sex addiction. 
And I'd been, I'd been exposed to porn when I was six years old. My mom, who was studying to be a psychologist, I found two playboys, I asked them what they were. She didn't want me to think sex was a taboo subject or something to be ashamed of, so she just let me have them. And it opened this, this door for pornography just to be normal. And at six years old, you don't even know what to do with it, but I knew that other kids didn't have this, and that made me cool. And eventually I figured it out, but like my tastes would change because what starts off as like Playboy turned into not Playboy and turned into me looking at stuff that didn't even line up with what I was into, like stuff that I would be ashamed of for looking at, but it was progressive. And it was something that, that unraveled every relationship that I was in. And I didn't see it at the time because it's like a fish in water doesn't see life outside the water. I just thought that this was normal. But like I'm with a girl that I'm supposed to be in love with and supposed to be able to connect with. And I feel a million miles away from her remembering things that I'd seen and just replaying these things in my head. And there was no intimacy in my relationships. And I went from relationship to relationship to relationship thinking that there was something wrong with me. And I dated a girl actually in my, my right around 20, 21 years old, off and on for about eight years that turned out to be a sociopath. And there was a lot of manipulation, a lot of hurt that came out of that. And at one point, I actually thought it would be easier to be gay than it would be to be continuing in that uh, craziness of relationship. And the things I'd watch, the things I'd see, you know, there was bisexuality, there were other things that I would, would watch, and maybe that's, maybe that's where I fit. But not knowing myself and having no idea of like what my life should look like because I didn't have a standard for truth at all. Nobody had ever told me that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, that I actually learned to experience like what works by walking by faith, not by sight, by stepping in front when I don't see the path ahead of me. When it doesn't make sense to my head, I actually start to see fruit when I step out and just trusting that it might be true. And I found that in my walk with Christ, that as I stepped out in faith, trusting that the Bible was true, whether it made sense to my mind or not, that I've seen the fruit again and again and again and again and again. And it's just, it's crazy. Like there were, you know, I could, I could go on all night, but I'm not going to. Just <laughs> say it that it, it, you know, it ended up where I was, uh, I was trying to perfect myself on my own strength. And I was uh, 100% organic, 100% vegan, 100% raw foodist, that if it wasn't uh, prepared a below 105 degrees Fahrenheit, if it wasn't organic and it wasn't vegan, I wasn't eating. So I was like 149 pounds and I'm 6'3". I'm like a buck, buck 75 right now. So imagine me 25 pounds lighter. I'm not a big guy. But in my mind, I had the healthiest diet on the planet. I was also suffering from crippling panic attacks and I work in a, in a creative field and I would fly around for, for work and I, I found myself in the middle of Times Square having a uh, really thought I was going to die a panic attack. And it, it was not the first time that I had to go to the ER because of panic attacks. And they had just become a regular part of my life. And I just thought, it has to be what I'm eating. You know, I, maybe I ate something that wasn't organic. I, I mean, seriously, that's where I was at before I got, uh, before I got sued. So uh, I want to, can we look at, at Christ's genealogy? I gave you those slides in, in Matthew. So there's a, there, I, I'll, I'll get into to the word that I want to share with you. So there's, uh, 
there are genealogies in the Bible, and for those of you who grew up in church, you're aware of them. For those of you who didn't, maybe you're not, but there's places where it's like so-and-so is son of so-and-so, who's son of so-and-so, who's son of so-and-so, and they go on. At the beginning of Matthew, they give you Christ's genealogy through Joseph, and Joseph was Christ's adopted dad. They're clear that he wasn't Christ's dad, but in this genealogy, it's interesting, and I just, for the sake of, uh, of time, I highlighted these these little, there, there's little weird asides in this genealogy because most of it is Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, and most of the genealogies go on like that. But this one is like, well, but Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. There's a bunch of drama that went on in there trying to kill their brother. There's like, you know, anyway, there, and then, uh, well, and even like Isaac and Jacob, Jacob and his brother, that's a whole nother mess. Uh, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, Perez and Zerah, they're twins, uh, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar was Judah's son's wife. Judah's son died. So Judah had Tamar marry his son's brother. Then his son's brother died and then she tricked the dad into sleeping with her and got pregnant with twins. And while the twins were being born, one stuck his hand out, the other one pulled his hand back in and then went out first because there was this whole thing about being firstborn. There's some like weird stuff that's in this genealogy, you know, and it goes further. And there's, you know, there's uh, Boaz, who was the mother of Rahab. Rahab was a hooker. Uh, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth had a mother-in-law that you could probably say was difficult, but Ruth was really, really stand-up about this bitter old woman that's constantly like negative Nancy, and she's like, I am sworn to be with you until I die, you know? And it's, there's, there's stuff, and so you can keep going, going forward on this. Uh, there's some more. So David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. They won't even mention her name in here because there's so much scandal wrapped up in there. He kills, he has his buddy killed because he got his buddy's wife pregnant. And then they have a, a child together who turns out to be uh, Solomon, uh, who's super wise and becomes super successful and is a great, is a great king. So it's redeemed. But anyway, there's, there's a lot of things <laughs> in there. And then you get down to Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of exile to Babylon. And God said about this guy who was a king, he said, even, I, I, even if you were wearing my signet ring, I would take that friggin' ring off. That's how much you're out of this. He was just, he wasn't a good guy. So David was, uh, so you can keep going. Uh, and there's, uh, after the exile to, to Babylon, there's a bunch of this other stuff. And then there's Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Thus there were, huh, 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So that's interesting, right? Right, okay. So uh, there's, there, I think it's called epigenetics four. Can you bring up that slide? I had this question. So there's this, oh, well, actually we'll look at this first. So this is an interesting one. So in Luke, there's another, there's another genealogy. 
And it's the genealogy of Christ through Mary. And so Mary was also related to David, but she came out of his other son, Nathan's line. And then when you get to the bottom of that genealogy, you get back to Abraham, which is where we started with the other genealogy. And there's less, there's less stuff in this one. There's actually none. And, uh, well, there is some, but we, it, it's not mentioned, so we'll just, we'll just keep it with what's there. But you get down to Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, who's the son of Enosh, who was the son of Seth, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. Now, you hear in church a lot that Jesus was God's one and only son. The Bible that says that Jesus was God's one begotten son. Begotten means naturally birthed. Adam was created to be a son. And when you're thinking about Adam was created to be a son, and there's, you, you can read the, the parable of the, the lost sons. We'll save that for another time. But uh, Adam, who was the, the son of God, wanted his inheritance early. That Paul says that in, while we're here on earth, we'll see but through a mirror dimly. We, not everything's gonna be clear to us, but in the end, when we're with him, all things will be made clear. Adam wanted to be able to see everything while he was here so he wouldn't need God. He was like the younger son in the parable of the lost sons or the parable of the prodigal son that said, Dad, I want to live as if you're dead already. Just give me your money. But unlike this son, the other son, the older son, the bad older brother in that parable, Jesus was the good older brother that chose to leave his perfect genealogy, to leave his perfect family line, to intentionally insert himself into the mess of our human family lines. That he left heaven to come to earth and didn't choose to come into a perfect family. Because I think if you're a human, there's no such thing as a perfect family, right? Right? I love my parents. I've got amazing, amazing, great parents, but my family is far from perfect. And Christ chose to, to not stay in heaven where it was safe and where it was easy, like the older brother in the parable of the lost son that just wanted to stay at home. When his brother left and was like, I'm not part of the family anymore, he wouldn't recognize him as his brother anymore. He would just recognize him as some guy that took his father's money. But the father still had a heart for the younger son and was constantly looking out for him, hoping for the day that he would come home. So there's a, there's a, a line that, that Peter says about forgiveness. And this is where, <laughs> uh, well, okay, let me, let me stop. I'll give you the title of my message. I, so... I was born into a lot of mess. I had a lot of mess that I brought into my life. I had a lot of mess that came into my life that I didn't bring in. What I found out when I got saved was it didn't matter what I was born into. What matters is what I'm reborn into. And when Christ left heaven and came into the mess of the family that he came into. And by the way, there was a mess. Like nobody talks about uh, Nazareth as like, you know, it was a town at the time of about 300 people. I live in La Jolla. There's 40,000 people and people talk. 
Any of you guys from like a small town? Okay, town of 300 people, people are talking, right? And I love about the Gospels is in the Gospels, there, is, uh, there are accounts from different, uh, different disciples because they were standing in different places. And when Christ came back to preach in the synagogue, one disciple heard, oh, isn't that Jesus' son of the carpenter? Dismissed him because of his trade. But in Mark, in Mark 6, uh, he heard, isn't that Jesus' son of Mary? You would always say son of the father unless the child didn't have a father because all of the child's inheritance, all of his legitimacy came through his father's line saying this is so-and-so son of the mother is just saying that he doesn't have a father, that he's illegitimate. Not only is he a carpenter's son, but he's not even a legitimate human being. He's not just not a legitimate rabbi. He doesn't even deserve to live. And Christ chose intentionally to be born into that. So, okay, I got to get to my point. So it doesn't matter how you were born, uh, I was reborn this way. And so that's the title of, uh, of this message, when you get reborn. And I just want to congratulate all the people that got baptized tonight. You have no idea what you're in store for. When I got baptized, it wasn't just a public declaration of a, an inward decision. God changed my life that day. And I can look at like line in the sand, like BC, AD from the day, not that I got saved, but from the day that I got baptized. So I want to talk about a couple of things. One is uh, Peter said to, to Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? And Jesus, he said like up to seven times, thinking that he was being generous. And Jesus said, no, not 70, not seven times, but up to 70 times, seven times. So I'm doing Hero this year, and I read that, and I was like, huh, I know that Hebrew letters line up to numbers. I wonder what the number 490 lines up to. And I was just curious. It was an interesting thing. Those are all the Hebrew letters. Those are the numbers that they line up with. And we can look at the 70 times 7. So uh, the, the number 70 times 7, 490, lines up to uh, the word tamim, which means finished. So when Christ was up on the cross, the last words that he said were, it is finished. So I can look at it as a question to me, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Well, I have to forgive them until it is finished, right? So that's, that's great information. I mean, I could ask, what does finished look like? And I could look again to what Christ said on the cross, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do, Right? If I can get to the point where I'm able to look at the people who persecute me and not find my identity in what they're saying about me, but find my identity in who my father says I am, then I can say, forgive them, Father. They don't even know what they're doing. They're lost. But it goes deeper. It goes deeper than that because when I'm, I'm looking at not just how many times do I have to forgive others, but how many times do I have to ask for forgiveness? How many times do I have to come forward to the altar when I'm dealing with stuff? Because I've dealt with stuff my whole life and there was stuff that I thought was just me, right? You know, I came into this. I don't know why I'm, why I'm like that. I guess it's just me. Well, I was born this way, right? Well, no. I was born with a bunch of generational stuff. 
And by the way, those 14 generations, interesting factoid, I was like, I wonder how long a generation is. Looked it up. So scientists have now looked across the, the human history, and they used to say generations were 25 years. Now they say a generation between mother and daughter is 30 years, but in a father's line, from father to son is 35 years. So interestingly enough, 14 times 35 is the same as 70 times seven. So you look at these generations from time to time to time to time in the Bible, and it's like, I'm gonna call out 14 generations, 14 times 35, it is finished. I'm a God that delivers. I've had a plan for the end since before the beginning. It doesn't matter where you came from. The Bible says that God's faithful to complete every good work that he starts. And you look at some things with, with baptism. I was so scared when I got baptized that God was going to kill who I was because there are things about me that are actually good. And what I found is God doesn't kill the seed that he plants. He just kills the weeds that have grown up around that seed that are trying to kill its life, right? So if you want to get really deep, you can, you can also look at this. There's a prophecy in Daniel. If you bring that up, it's, it's an interesting one because it keeps going. Actually, there's more words that line up to 70 times 7. Bethlehem is one of them, also a 490 word. Nativity is a 490 word. Uh, nativity, by the way, does not necessarily refer, refer to Christ. Nativity, dictionary definition, is the occurrence of one being born. That Bethlehem, a house of bread, is, it is finished. Nativity, being born, it is the occurrence of one's birth. It is finished. You know, and you, you look at these, these things around birth and around bread, that, that Christ said that it's not, that uh, man doesn't live by bread alone. But he also said, this is, this is, this bread is my body broken for you. That there's, there's, it is finished in the body of Christ. That he gave his back, like he gave his, his back, by his stripes we are healed. That he gave his body for our brokenness. He gave his physical body so we would be physically healed. But have you ever thought that the church is also called the body of Christ? Then he gives us the body so that we would be healed. In James 5.16, it says, I, in the message version, it says, make a regular habit out of this. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That there's, in this church, I've found real transparency in the culture, like people that are really willing to get in the dirt with me and work through all of the stuff that I've come in here with so that I could see the completed work of God in the land of the living. You know, Christ said to, to Martha, if you would just believe, you would see the glory of God. And when I started to believe and came into a house of believers that gave me uh, a belief beyond the belief that I had that believed for me even when I didn't, and I started to see the fruit in their lives of the it is finished, 
that they may have had to come forward to the altar a hundred times until it is finished, but they believe that God's faithful to complete every single work that he starts, that he's started a good work and that he's faithful to complete it until it is finished, that there was a transparency and an invitation just to come forward. There's, um, you know, you prepare for a message and you have all these points and it's like, you know, Pastor Jurgen gets to two, I'm not getting to that many, but that's fine. There's a... Uh, So, I don't know what you guys came in here with. I actually honestly don't know what I came in here with. But I know that God didn't intend, doesn't intend to leave you where you are. That there's a perfection that comes through Christ. That's the whole, that's the whole reason for the exchange that I couldn't do it on my own, and I know I couldn't do it on my own because I tried really, really hard to make myself perfect on my own strength, and all I could do was get to a point where I failed. But what I've seen since I got saved is that I've been being matured from glory to glory. And there's something that, that I'll, I'll share with you that Colin was sharing about the other night, and I've just been thinking about it a lot since then, that there, you know, if you've been... If, if God has a football field sized plan for your life, but you only have like a 10 by 10 space that you've been given to steward so far, that you've got that grass green and beautiful and amazing and thriving, when you get leveled up, when you get more territory, the territory that you've given isn't going to be green and thriving. I don't know if you realize it, but when like, when when God put the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden, it says the, the area outside the garden was wild. But he gave them a standard for how the, the world was supposed to look. He put them in perfection. So when they left, he said, you know, go out to all the earth and subdue it. I'm giving it to you. But you've got to make it perfect. I'm going to give you a standard for perfection. And I'm going to give you everything in you with me for you to be able to make this whole earth paradise. And that happens in our, our lives because we're in the middle of it right now. I have grown so much in the time that I've been in this, this church where it's been from glory to glory. I came here on the second date with the woman that's now my wife. We got engaged five months in. We got married five months after that. We got pregnant with our daughter within a month of getting married. We did everything right. I, we didn't sleep together before we got married. We were willing to trust that God had completed those works in our lives, that we still had the opportunity to work them out. There was awkwardness when we came together because it's awkward when you don't know each other that way. But I thank God for the examples of the people in our church that would just tell us like, hey, it's like that for everybody. If you've been going and being super slutty for your whole life and then you've been like sanctified for a season and now you're going into a season of being in a union blessed by God, the beginning of that union is going to be awkward. But because... We're in a habit of being in a community where the altar is open and you can come forward until it is finished and we're standing on the promise of God that we're going to see his glory in the land of the living. We know that even though it was awkward initially, it didn't stop us from moving forward. It obviously didn't stop us from starting a family. 
there's been a lot of, of growth, but there's been like level up, level up, level up, level up, level up. And there's times where it's like, holy, whoa. My little tiny patch of grass has gotten a lot bigger. And I don't see the road ahead of me, but I know that I walk by faith and not by sight, that God continues to move me forward. And so I want to... In a, in a moment, I'm, I'm just going to tell you what I'm going to do. For those of you who don't know Jesus, have never prayed to receive him into your life, that I'll tell you that there's no, there's no growth until that happens. That I saw it in my life. And, you know, I don't know. This is another kind of big thought. But if you think of, like, we have souls that are eternal, and the Bible says that when we're saved, we're already seated in God's right, at God's right, right hand in all the heavenly places. Well, so my soul is already in heaven, but I'm here in time. Can you pull up the time slide? That there's, it, it's a weird thing. Because there's part of me that's a soul, and there's part of me that's a body. And my body ho ho houses my soul, but like my soul also lives in eternity. And when I got saved, I started going from glory to glory. But before that, no matter how hard I tried, I failed. And I wonder where my soul was. If there was something calling back to my body here on earth because it was already somewhere else and I was just becoming what I would eventually be, lost. But when I got saved, I'm already seated at God's hand, perfect, blameless, exalted and that my life on earth would go from glory to glory to eventually resemble what was already true about me spiritually it's a really crazy concept but you look at like time is like heaven's open enrollment period you know you've got like eternity past with like God in just in communion with himself in, in the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, not running out of things to talk about because they are creative. It's not just something that they have. It's something that they are. It's not boring. But God created us because he wanted us in relationship with him. And during this time from creation to revelation, he gives us an opportunity to know him. So he can work it out in eternity future that it's not just the Trinity, but the people of God in communion with the Trinity. There's an alternate version of this, which is not God's plan, which is the people that he so loved that he sent his son to die. He clothed himself in flesh, put him in himself into the middle of our mess and chose to die so that we would be redeemed. That was his plan but there's some that won't respond. Can you bring up the picture of my family? I'm gonna tell you about my, my two kids. That's my daughter, Ella, and my son, Jack. That's my beautiful wife, Jenny. And this is what has happened in my redeemed life. Actually, all of this has happened in the past five years, which is incredible, right? I can't tell you how much I love that little girl and that little boy. From the moment I heard that I was going to be a daddy, I already had love in my heart for her. 
that at, at 10 weeks, I saw her little hand reach out and touch the ultrasound machine. And I just vividly saw my hand with her hand in it walking through life. But because we're in relationship with each other, I don't think there is anything on earth that would ever stop me from loving her. But if she chose not to love me back, that would stop us from having a loving relationship. If she turned 18 and said, look, I am changing my name, I am moving away, I want nothing to do with you. If you follow me where I go, I will reject you there the same way I'm rejecting you here. I don't want you in my life. It wouldn't stop me from loving her. It would break my heart. And I don't think there would be a day that went by where I wasn't just wrecked, hoping that my daughter would change her mind and come home to her daddy. But there would be nothing that I could do to fix that relationship. Because a loving relationship is a conscious choice on behalf of two people, not one. And you look at God, who is power, who is love, who is life, who is all of the things that are good. And you think about eternity in the presence of everything that you can imagine that is good or choosing an eternity that is absent of all of those things. For some of us, I think our souls are already there and we feel that pull into the darkness. Even though we see the light, we feel pulled back into the darkness. I know what that's like, I've, I've lived there. And there's some of you that come to church that maybe have prayed that prayer, but still feel that pull that you're just far away, that you're not connected to that God that is, his heart is breaking, hoping that one day you'll just come home to see your daddy. So for you, I, I want to just, uh, I just want to offer this opportunity to respond like that. So while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if you know that you are far away from God, but have a sense that while I've been talking that there's been something pulling on your heart saying, I know that I have a daddy that loves me. Though my human father may not have been a good guy at all, though my family may be broken, I know that I have a perfect heavenly father and I just, I know I need to respond. If that's you just, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, would you just pop up your hand? And I'll pray for you here in a moment. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our pastors, team, and what we do at C3 San Diego, go to c3sandiego.com.